We have been seeking from the Gospel of Luke to know and to follow Jesus. That fits right in with who we are as a church. We want to know and follow Jesus by helping others to know and follow Jesus. And Luke's intention in this gospel is for those who have believed in Jesus to know him and to follow him. And so we're at a unique, there's a unique aspect of Luke's gospel that's different from the other gospels. Luke focuses, and we're in that part now from somewhere around chapter 10 on into chapter 18 or so when, when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. We're focusing on the last journey of Jesus from, from uh, Galilee on to Jerusalem. He's traveling down the Jordan River Valley, probably on the east side of that valley, an area at that time that was called Perea. Now it would be modern-day Jordan. But just traveling on the east side, and this was a common pilgrim route, as you're coming to Jerusalem for Passover, if you're making good time, it could take you about a week. But maybe this is two weeks. We don't know exactly the time frame because Jesus might be stopping and teaching all along the way. But what Luke has done is out of that teaching ministry, he's gathered together a lot of episodic teaching. A whole collection of different episodes that you could, they stand alone. And yet Luke has arranged them together under the direction of the Holy Spirit for a particular purpose. To prepare Jesus' followers. Now as we approach this, this passage, chapter 12, on Monday morning... We were um, focusing on, okay, chapter 12, there's a lot of different episodes. There's a lot of different, there's, there's this teaching episode, and then there's that, and there's this topic, and how do these things fit together? And we talked about the original audience. And to understand what is being said, you have to consider who is it being said to and in what context. And certainly, originally, Jesus is saying these things to particular people, sometimes the disciples, sometimes the crowd at large, a sort of a mixed multitude. Sometimes he's talking to the Pharisees. So there's an original audience, and we understand rightly the words that Jesus says by recognizing who he says them to. But there's another layer to that, isn't there? Luke, around about the middle of the, of the 60s A.D., 62 maybe, something like that. Luke has done his research and compiled together this Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts by the direction of the Holy Spirit. And he's writing particularly with his own audience. Luke's intended audience is not the people traveling down the Jordan Valley, but it's rather that broader audience around the Mediterranean world who heard the Gospel through Paul's missionary journeys. A lot of them not Jewish people at all. And so there's, a, there's an affinity in Luke to speaking to those outside of the Jewish religion and sharing, helping them to know Jesus that they might follow him. So Luke has an intended audience in another historical moment where it won't be long. Paul himself is going to, in a sense you could say, be a victim of Roman persecution and the churches are going to feel it. So while Jesus is teaching people in anticipation of his arrival in Jerusalem and his arrest, rejection, and crucifixion, Luke is recounting these teachings of Jesus to prepare a church that is going to be facing their own persecution and potentially their own death for their faith at the hands of Rome as they take up their cross 
and follow Jesus. And yet, as we're kicking around these various levels of who's the audience then, who is these things written to, one of the guys in our morning study put it so clearly and plainly. He said, well, I I read this as the Lord talking to me. The Lord is telling these things to me, absolutely. Understanding some of that background, understanding the threats, understanding the pressures that they're under in the 60s, Understanding the pressure that Jesus' disciples immediately are going to feel as they approach Jerusalem helps us to then hear these same words in the midst of various pressures that we will feel in life, in the world, and at times relating to our faith and others' rejection of it, challenging us because of it. And so... In in a sense, there are warnings on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem. There are warnings on the way that Jesus has for his disciples and others surrounding them. There are warnings on the way then that those who would follow Jesus in the first century need to take to heart because they're also going to experience trouble and opposition. And there are warnings on the way for we who would know and follow Jesus. There are warnings on the way, and and as I take this chapter, I'm going to arrange these, or I I saw a couple of themes emerge in the arranging that Luke, by the Holy Spirit, has done that I want to share with us. I think there's a warning against um, a a, a fake faith. There's a warning of, of distractions to our faith, things that would draw us aside. But before we talk about those things more fully, I... I realize that Jesus does this better than I. So first what I want to do is I want to read out of Luke chapter 12. An extended reading. We'll take several minutes at this. So open your Bibles. I invite you to follow along. And and it might be easier to follow along if we're using the same version. So uh, I am going to be reading from the ESV, which is also the the Bible that's in the the church, uh, a bench or pew in front of you. But I invite you to follow along. Luke chapter 12. I'll begin reading in verse 1. In the meantime, when so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he, Jesus, began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy, which is play-acting, which is pretense. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him, the one whom we are accountable to. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, who confesses me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge and receive before the angels of heaven. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. 
And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit, who testifies to who Jesus really is, whoever rejects that testimony will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to him, Man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? He said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. He told him a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns. I will build larger ones. And there I will store all of my grain and all of my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods. Your garage is full of stuff. Laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Take an early retirement. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be now? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And he said to his disciples about this. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food. Nor about your body, what you put on. Life is more than food, your body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouses nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that. Why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I will tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, tomorrow is thrown in the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat, what you are to drink, nor be worried, for all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you have need of them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and all of these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, 
that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for everyone? That's a good question, isn't it? That was the question I actually began referring to earlier. Are you telling these things for us, for Peter, James, and John, for the twelve? Surely Judas is in there, by the way. Or are you telling these things for the crowd? Even warning the Pharisees. Or is it bigger than that, Lord? Are you telling everyone, are you telling these things even to us today? As I described, these things are written. These things are things Jesus told his disciples and others. These things are things that the Lord spoke to the early church in the midst of the troubles of their day. These things are also then things that the Holy Spirit intends for us to listen in on for our day as well. To to take two warnings, if I may. First of all, beware of fake faith. Beware of false faith in the first 12 verses. Don't fall for the fake faith. He says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. That which is in the Pharisees is hidden within them. You don't see it yet, but just wait, you will. And that leaven of the Pharisees is their pretending, their pretense, their hypocrisy. You see, the Pharisees continue to ask questions. Rabbi, could you please tell us? Rabbi, could you understand? Could you, could you help us to understand? Could you explain this? Because this is differently than what we would expect. The, the traditions of the elders say this, and yet you say this. Could you, could you just help us understand that? Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you claiming to be the Messiah? Who are you? They're just, they're just trying to understand, right? They're just asking innocent questions. Well, no, they're not. In fact, the, the previous verse of the, of the, uh, at the end of chapter 11, verse 54 says, Lying in wait for him, they were trying to catch him in something he might say. They're asking him as many questions as they, as they can. It says that they're, they're pressing hard to provoke him to speak on all kinds of things because they want to catch him in something. Surely if we asked him to, to, to hold forth on enough different topics, certainly he's going to say something that he is either going to get him in trouble with the crowd or is going to get him in trouble with the Romans. Somehow we can catch him in something. That's the pretending of the Pharisees. And it's all going to blow up in not too long. When they arrive in Jerusalem after the week there, that's exactly what's going to happen. They're going to use his words against, and they're going to turn the crowd against him. And the Son of Man will be rejected and crucified. And yet on the third day, he will rise again. Disciples, don't fear those Pharisees. Don't fear those who actually have a hidden agenda, those who are pretending to be with you but are not. Don't worry about their traps. Be watchful of them, but don't be fearful of them. Do not fear, verse 4, those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Because they're going to reject Jesus. They're going to kill Jesus. And then, then there's nothing more that they can do to him. He is going to rise from the dead, and they can't stop it. There's nothing more that they that can do. 
He is going to, risen from the dead, ascend to the right hand of the majesty on high. And there's nothing they can do about it. There's nothing more that they can do. Because Jesus humbled himself, God is going to exalt him and give to him a name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God and there's nothing more that they can do. And so they can't touch him. They might come after you. But you are in his hands and there's nothing more that they can do can do. Don't be afraid of them. You are accountable to God. You answer only to Him. So in your concerns, in your ambitions, in your goals, answer to Him and don't be distracted by those who reject Him. You see, there's only two options. He reminds them. Another point I wanted to highlight in verse 7. You are more valuable than many sparrows. How many of you have a hummingbird fever, hummingbird feeder? Show of hands. How many of you have bird seed outside, at least sometimes? Okay, we've got, we're feeding hummingbirds, we're feeding birds. The blue jays and the squirrels are probably appreciating that as well. Do you think you care for birds more than God does? He made them. Do you think... You care for birds more than God cares for you. You see, Jesus says, God provides for all of them. Not one of them is forgotten by God. And you are more value than many sparrows. Now that actually is a, is a, was an obvious statement in the day. That would be a controversial statement today. There are some who would say, that, who does humanity think they are? That, that, the, that, that the birds of the air and the fish of the sea, the salmon and the sea lion. Oh, wait, there's its own little conflict going on there. But, but, but they have as much right to this planet as you do. Well, not according to God who made us all. That you are the ones, you are the ones that God said, let us make humanity, male and female, in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You are more valuable to God than many sparrows, salmon, sea lions, etc. You are the apple of God's eye. You are the delight of his creation, that he created you to, to be in relationship with him. You are more value than many sparrows. What are you worried about? And everyone who acknowledges him, everyone who confesses him, everyone who believes in Jesus as our Savior will be reunited into that relationship with God which he desires for us. Everyone who receives me before men, who are they? He said, I will receive them before the angels. I will receive them in heaven. There's the contrast. The, the, there's the lesser to the greater that he's going to build on even further. But the one who, who rejects me, the one who rejects Jesus will also be rejected by him. And in rejecting him, they're going to bring you before the synagogues, the rulers, the authorities. But don't worry about it. Don't be anxious about it. The Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
I think Luke's including that for the strengthening of the church in his generation because the church was founded on the reality of that promise. Do you remember the early chapters of Acts, which Luke is going to be getting to? Chapter 4, chapter 5, that's exactly what they did. They called James, or, or, or rather Peter and John before the council. Before the rulers and the authorities and the chief priests and the scribes and the lawyers. And they grilled them and they threatened them and they beat them. And they looked at these who dared to stand before them and say, we must obey God rather than men. We remember who we're accountable to. And we remember those who there's nothing more that they can do. We're accountable to God. We're accountable to the one whom we have believed in and who has said he will receive us in the company of angels. We put our confidence in him. We will obey God rather than man. And they looked at these and they marveled at them, these rural country folk from Galilee, because they had been with Jesus. And that made the difference. Beware of fake faith. And yet, don't be afraid of it. Do not fear. Now, there's a warning here. There's a warning here even among the disciples. This is not merely a warning maybe for the Pharisees to consider. This is a warning even among the disciples. Judas is, in the, is, is, is still in the group. But there's going to be a time that Judas is going to make plans in secret. Judas is going to whisper among others in a back room, and he's going to cut a deal for 30 pieces of silver. And yet what he has done in secret that none of the other disciples know about, it won't be long before everybody knows about them. Everybody knows about those words, and you know about them today. And your awareness of Judas's treachery, Judas's own personal rejection of Jesus, your being aware of that is a witness to you that God's words are true. They were a witness to that first century church, and they're a reminder to us that God knows it all. God knows everything, and your God has you. Don't worry. Beware of fake faith, but beware of distractions from faith. Don't chase the wrong prize. Verses 13 to 21, in the midst of Jesus' warning about those who believe in him and those who don't, somebody in the crowd asked the distracting questions. Yeah, but what about, uh, Rabbi, that my brother isn't rightly sharing the inheritance with me? If he's the older brother, he's supposed to get a, a double portion of the inheritance, but he's not supposed to keep it all. That we're all heirs and we all are, are by the law of Moses to share in that inheritance. He's not following through on the, on the law. And Jesus asked a very strange question. He says, who appointed me a judge and arbitrator over you? What, do you think I'm the king, he's, he's asking? Do you think, well, I'm, I'm a rabbi, and rabbis could, could certainly interpret the law as to what's the right and fair and just thing to do in a given situation, but is there more than that? Is Jesus the king like Solomon who would apply godly wisdom to solve a dilemma? Who do they think Jesus is? That's the bigger point. And those words, Luke's going to use those words again. I'll throw this in for extra. Luke is going to refer to that again in Acts chapter 7. When Stephen, 
Again, before the rulers and authorities, answering for his faith, he gives this wonderful short survey, one chapter of Jewish history and in the relationship with God. And early in that history, there's this guy named Moses. And Moses has been preserved by God and has been, has been lifted up by God. And Moses has power from the palace of Pharaoh. And he goes to confront and intervene in, in a dispute between two of his Jewish brethren. And the one taking of the advantage of the other rejects Moses, saying these same words, Who made you to be a judge and arbitrator over us? Who do you think you are? And yet, Stephen points out, it's that same Moses whom they rejected, whom God sends to be their deliverer. And that's going to be true of Jesus. This same Jesus whom they have rejected is going to be, is the only one who can be their deliverer. So there's some of that, that Jesus is perhaps hinting, you're looking at the wrong need. You're looking at the wrong goal. Your focus too low. You're looking at this earthly inheritance when you should be considering the internal inheritance that God has intended for his people. And then he begins to, to unpack that further. That, that, that Israel is God's inheritance. That God has a special blessing for them. God intends to give them the kingdom. But they would easily trade it away for a little more comfort, security, and safety, and prosperity right now on earth. They would trade away their birthright and inheritance in rejecting Messiah to get along with Rome, even as Esau sold his for a bowl of porridge. That's what's kind of at stake in that whole argument. And Jesus points out with the story of the rich man and his barns and soul how should, what shall I do for my soul? Soul, take your ease. I have provided for you. When he's provided for his flesh, he's done nothing for his soul. And that very night, his soul is going to be required of him. He is thinking short term, and God is telling them they need to be looking at the long term. Don't chase the wrong prize, and don't let temporary worries weaken your faith. The temporary needs that will press in upon us, those things that God knows that we have need of. Look at verse 27 again. Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. You've never seen a flower work hard. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Yeah, Solomon had it all. But why does he use Solomon? Solomon is not the best example of, of faithfulness to God in the Old Testament, is he? Maybe that's why he uses Solomon. Solomon wasn't especially deserving of the prosperity and blessing that is poured out upon him. In fact, Solomon is unfaithful, and God tells Solomon that the kingdom is going to be torn from him, and, and portions of it, a large portion of it, ten of the twelve tribes are going to be given to another. And yet, not in Solomon's life, only in the life of his son. Why does God, in the midst of Solomon's later unfaithfulness, still continue to let Solomon enjoy such prosperity and blessing in God's kingdom at that time. I think it's because of God's promise to David. 
What God would do for David's son because of God's promise to David that was not made on the matter of David's faithfulness either. It was made on the basis of God's faithfulness. That God made a promise and God fulfilled it and God let it be fulfilled even when the heir was not willing of it. And if God would so do to Solomon, not willing of God, not not worthy rather, of God's promise and prosperity and blessing, how much more will God not do for you? What he has promised and made a covenant for you, not merely to David, but through his own son. He has made with us a new covenant. A new covenant that, that, that is purchased for us in Jesus' death in our place. A new covenant that results in the spirit of the living God actually dwelling within us. How much more will God not provide for us these things that you need? And what are those things? God is already working his glory in us. Solomon was not arrayed in glory like the flowers of the field, but God is working in even greater glory. What is that? The likeness of Christ by the Spirit of the living God that he works within his people. That this same Spirit, we are being transformed from glory to glory into the very likeness of Christ. We can trust God in the midst of the temporary worries and anxieties that might not distract us. How much more does God care for you, all the nations around? You know what it's kind of like? These distractions that would take us away, get our eyes off of what's more important, it's kind of like a cell phone. Young parents today have to be real careful about their own cell phones. They have to be careful about... Taking their cell phone and setting it somewhere and not having it close at hand, not pulling it out because they're little ones. They're, they're one-year-olds and two-year-olds are already seeing that. And it's amazing how two-year-olds already know how to swipe across a cell phone and move from picture to picture of themselves, don't they? They already know how to do that. Where did they learn that from? They learned it from parents being fixated on the screen. And yet, one of the worst things you can do with the developmental mindset of one, two, three-year-olds is to get them hooked on the screen. And so parents have to be wise to protect their little ones from those kind of distractions. And that's what our Lord is doing for us. He's warning us about the distractions that are easily around us of the things that we think we need that we can actually trust God for. And he would redirect our attention to that which is far better instead. Look at verse 32 again. Fear not, little flock. Do you hear the tenderness there? Fear not, little flock. Easily we fear the pressures of today. Is there a recession coming or is it already even here? Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags. Take what is entrusted into your temporary stewardship and use it in ways that will matter for eternity for the benefiting of others to know and to follow Jesus. Use it that way and you'll store up for yourself treasures in heaven that can't be taken where the bank will never close. The FDIC has no guarantees there, nor controls, nor need they. Because God, your Father, has you. 
Treasures in heaven that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. You know, you have an opportunity with what it is that God puts into your trust, your responsibility, to use that for yourselves, like the rich man in the parable who thought he was fulfilling his soul. Or you can, you can take in your hands and turn your heart. You know how you, sometimes you'll, you'll take somebody's gaze and you'll actually move their head because of something they're not seeing? Think of doing that same thing, but doing it with your heart. You can actually take your heart and point your heart in the right direction. God says we do that with our treasures. Those things that so easily grab our attention. Use that thing that gets your attention and use it to put your attention in the right direction. That's what he's telling us. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So, now is not the time to rest. Now is not the time to take at ease, as the parable described. Stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning bright in verse 35. Stay steady, ready, and faithful. The faithful servant is the one who is honored by his Lord at his return. Blessed are the servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say... He will dress himself. The master will dress himself. He will, he will lay aside his robe, and he will gird himself with a towel. He will dress himself like a servant and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. He will wash their feet. Does that remind you of something? If we are on the midst now, on the way from Galilee to Jerusalem, it won't be long before Jesus and his band arrive in Jerusalem, and it won't be a week that they're in Jerusalem when they are gathered in the upper room for that last supper, and Jesus does just what he has said. He acts it out for them now. What he is going to do, that he is going to, though he is the Lord, though he is the master, he is going to love and serve them. Peter shouldn't have needed to ask, Lord, what are you doing? Why is it that you would wash our feet there in that upper room if Peter had captured it here? Because Jesus already told him in advance what he's going to do. And that's what our Lord is going to do for you. He is going to lift, raise. Jesus doesn't, you know, we, we think of that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus. You might think, oh, you know, Jesus has got to share his inheritance with us. He can't wait. He delights to lift you and to share that glory that has been with his with the Father. He delights to share that with you, to lift you into it. He can hardly wait. That's his desire for us. That's his delight for us. And so Peter says, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And not unlike the taking off of the sandals and the washing of the feet. Is this parable for us or for, or for others and for everyone? And perhaps Jesus would say, well, if the sandal fits. How does the shoe fit here? These two kinds of warnings. First of all, beware of fake faith. As I said, this is not merely about the Pharisees. This is also among the disciples. There's one among them in their midst, in that band of 12. His name is Judas. He's going to make deals in back rooms. They're going to be shouted out in the open. 
Everybody knows, and you do too. But there's going to be others along the way in the church who go along with the church. There's a, there's a social circle. They're, they love one another, and others are drawn to that. That's a strange thing in the first century. And others are drawn into it for the social aspect of it. And yet, perhaps, perhaps they, they, they like that social connection and that support of others and how these truly love one another sacrificially. And they are beneficiaries of that. And yet, have they actually trusted in Jesus for themselves? Does it look like faith or is it genuinely faith? One of the things that Nehemiah did this morning, he, he, he took a stand. He declared this is his faith in Jesus, that he can confess his sin and God cleanses his sin. He doesn't need to hide it. He needs to confess it. And he needs and he believes in Jesus as his, his Savior. He's declared to us this morning his genuine faith. But it's easy to be along in a sense, with the crowd. It's easy sometimes to go with the flow. Everyone grows up in a Christian home has to come to this point, don't they? Where is the family's faith going to be my faith or not? That's an individual decision that your parents would love to make for you. Just like they'd love to choose who you're going to marry, and yet they don't necessarily get that opportunity. This is not a, not a decision anybody else can make for you. Will I believe in Jesus for myself? I think of a time... When I was 14, maybe 15, I kind of lose track in there. I think probably when I was 14. After my parents were divorced, my mom started again returned to church. And she visited a few. She took me and my sister. We were willing to go along with her. This was really important to mom. So we were, she'd been through a lot. We were willing to go along with her. And she, she chose a church that we would like as well. And it was actually a gospel preaching church. Well, they had membership classes, kind of like we're having after this, after this service, where you, where you find out more, you understand what is it that the church believed. And we went through those classes. And there was a time when I stood before that congregation, and I became a member of it, and the pastor asked several questions concerning my belief. Do I believe this? Do I believe that? Do I believe that? One of the things he asked me was, did I believe that Jesus Christ was the Savior of the world? And I said, yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world. But I did not actually believe that Jesus Christ was the Savior for my sin. I believed he died for sin generally, I didn't take to heart, I didn't trust in that he had died for me and my guilt personally. And so I stood before the church, I became a member that day, I got my own offering envelopes. <sighs> and yet, it wasn't until a couple of years later that a young lady invited me to go to church with her. And there, the pastor was teaching verse by verse through the Bible, he actually, in fact, was teaching that summer through the Gospel of Luke. Wouldn't you know it? And there I came to know Jesus, who he actually was. And I don't even know when the point of faith actually came, but I do remember somebody asking me. We had a Saturday softball game and a picnic lunch. And the question was put to me from across the table. So, do you believe in Jesus? Are you born again? Are you saved? Or are you just here for the food? What a great question. Because basically she was asking what's, what's asked of us here. Am I just going along 
with the social flow, but not really believing in Jesus for me. That's what she was asking from across the table. And, and I heard the question, I said, no, I believe in Jesus. I'm saved. Each of us needs to come to that moment. Am I just along with the flow of the crowd going towards Jerusalem? Because the, the pressures are going to come, and it's going to be revealed. And now's the time to say, no, I believe in Jesus for me. And if you do, if your faith is sincere instead of surface, then the warning for you is probably a different one. It's a, it's a warning concerning distraction. It's a warning of redirecting your heart in the midst of those distractions and pressures. Because, Paul tells us in Galatians, as you have received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. And how do we walk in him? One step at a time. One step after another. We have a next step wall in the back. I love that concept because the Christian life is consistently about another next step. What will I do? Not merely in knowing Jesus, but out of knowing, by faith, following. What is that next step? Maybe it's a step of sacrifice out of trust. That my trust will be clarified and strengthened out of the sacrifice that he's leading me to. If God is asking something of you, you know, I tell you a secret, he doesn't need the thing. What he wants is for you to direct your heart. If your faith is sincere, can you take another step in trusting? Can you take another step in directing your heart a little more toward his eternity as compared to present distractions? Each of us are in one of those two places. Each of us face one of those two warnings. A warning against fake faith or a warning against the distractions from faith. And so I'd like to now just close in, in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, Lord, I want to pray first for those that are actually, Lord, confronted this morning over the reality of their faith. They have known of Jesus. They have followed along with those who seem to be following Jesus. And yet, perhaps following along without actually believing in Jesus themselves. And Lord, I would pray this morning that you would press them on that conviction. Lord, press them on their need to believe, to receive, to confess Jesus as Lord and Savior, to receive him that they might be received and confessed among the angels in heaven. Lord, to not be distracted by the pressures of this life or what others might think of what they believe, but to trust you, to say even this morning, perhaps right here in this room, God, I believe you concerning Jesus, whom you gave in his death in my place for my guilt so that I could be forgiven, my sin removed, that I could be restored again into right relationship, to life forever with you. God, I believe you for that this morning in Jesus' name. And Lord, believing that, there are many distractions for us away from it. 
There are many pressures, there are many fears, there are the anxieties of, of, of life, especially concerning those whom we love. Father, would you strengthen our faith? Lord, would you help us as we've trusted you with our own eternity, would you help us to trust you with the things of this temporary life? Would you help us, Father, give us the courage to take that next step in following you, whatever it is. If there is some sacrifice to make, if there's something to do with our, our own time or treasures or talent or testimony, Father, would you make that clear? That we might direct our hearts more toward heaven. That we would set our own heart like a flint towards Jerusalem, even as Jesus did toward your purpose, toward your future. We pray that in Jesus' name. And all who agree said, amen. amen.